Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 293. Today's episode is all about how your mindset around finding love is keeping you from receiving it. Surrender is, is a skill that requires practice, just like love. These are skills that require practice. And I think we just think, oh, I love somebody, it's going to work. That's the glue. No, love is the fuel that motivates you to work at it. You know, and surrender is the skill that will allow you to exist in a world with a little bit more peace because you have less expectations of how you think things are supposed to be. Because the way things are going to play out have very little to do with you. You know, a lot of us have the center of the universe mindset, but like this place has been here a lot longer than us and it'll be here a lot long after. Uh, and we have to understand that we are experiencing this existence as it is you know stuff doesn't go your way that stuff wasn't going to go anybody's way because of that and it's like you have to surrender yourself to that and when we respect the nature of things is when things work like learning understanding gravity is the reason we can fly turn up your frequency with mind love bite-sized brain hacks for seekers dreamers and doers it's time to give your mind a little love with your host melissa monty This is your first time giving your mind a little love don't forget to hit the subscribe button mind love is a way of life and the more love and intention that you give your mind the better you'll feel about yourself and your life plus it's a win-win because more subscribers means mind love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom so don't forget to subscribe did you know that nearly 50 percent of adults are single you might be thinking, yeah, well, so what? More people are realizing that they don't need a partner to find happiness. But contradictory to that idea, there have been quite a few studies and surveys on this that show that anywhere from 65 to 80% of singles are actively looking for a relationship. So why is it so hard? Is the dating pool just that bad? If all of these people are looking for a partner, why is it that so many can't seem to find a match? Well, the truth is, your mindset has a huge impact on your ability to find love. And it's not just your mindset about love or relationships in general. It's also your beliefs and your attitudes about yourself and what you deserve. I have definitely found this to be true. When my self-worth was the lowest, I settled for the worst person that's ever been in my life. And when I felt like no one understood me and I was unlovable, my reality just seemed to affirm everything I believed which is basically how reality works, right? It just affirms our current beliefs, which is why we have to start with changing our beliefs to change our realities. And you wanna know a hard truth? A lot of us don't feel worthy of love. So even when it's right in front of us, we can't feel it. We'll look for everything that's wrong, or we'll pick fights, or we avoid it entirely. When I was researching for this episode, I expected to also include stats about how many people were unhappy in their marriages to kind of drill in my last point about not recognizing love even when it's present. But I ended up finding study after study that married people are actually happier. 
So why is there this growing trend showing that less Americans believe that marriage is the key to happiness? Well, here's where it gets really interesting. I came across a very influential study that showed that in several decades of German longitudinal data, self-reported happiness began to rise just before getting married. It peaked in the year of marriage, and then it declined for a lot of people in the years after. Given that happiness rose just before marriage, this suggests that happy people are more likely to get married. And just a side note, don't worry, married people. This does not mean that marriage is going to ruin your happiness. Maybe marriage or long-term partnerships don't increase happiness in Germany, but in a study in England, one in Taiwan, one among Christians, <laughs> marriage did increase happiness. But this episode isn't about whether or not a long-term partnership is going to improve your life. Because the truth is, if you start to rely on anything or anyone outside of yourself for your happiness, it will be fleeting. That's just how it works. So after all my digging, the point that stands out to me the most is that people who already feel happy, loved, and secure are more likely to secure a partner who will add to all of that, not create it from nothing. Besides, who desires a partnership only because of statistical data? That's just weird. We want what we want, regardless of how others feel about it. And for me, my relationship, my marriage, is the most healing experience that I've ever embarked on. And not because my husband healed me, but because of who I became when I had someone around to regularly bear witness to who I was. My habits of behavior or thoughts, my reactions how I'd speak to myself or others. Whereas when I was single, I just saw people less often. And if I was triggered, I'd go home. My relationship gave me this persistent mirror for all of the things in my life that I was ignoring. And yeah, sometimes that's miserable, especially if I wanted to continue to live my life as I was before. But for me, I seek opportunities for reflection and growth. And for me, a relationship provided a foundation to build upon or to move beyond those patterns and create new ones. And that's what increased my happiness. But regardless of your reasons for wanting a relationship or even just wanting to find love, which is a basic human need, you need to know that you deserve it. And that's the belief we have to get to. Because many of us, whether we can see it in ourselves or not, don't really believe that we deserve love. One of my favorite quotes by Dr. Joe Dispenza is, if you want to find your dream partner, write down all of their qualities and become them. So if we want more love in our lives, we have to start loving more first. And that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Humble the Poet. He's a Canadian-born rapper, spoken word artist, poet, international best-selling author, and former elementary school teacher. What began as reciting spoken word poetry and coffee shops to impress girls evolved into a creative adventure that has spanned the last 10 years, crossing genres, mediums, and oceans. He has millions of followers across social platforms, and several of his books have become international bestsellers. His newest book is called How to Be Loved. So three key things we will learn are how attachment to ego keeps us from experiencing love, why we need to sit with our pain to experience love, and pathways and access points to love that don't involve other people. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. 
Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Humble the Poet to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So what inspired your latest work in learning to receive love? Um, I was in a situation, I was in a relationship that on paper was amazing. and inside it didn't feel good and i needed to figure out why i needed to figure out why i knew i had love in my life but i couldn't receive it and um you know the relationship didn't survive didn't survive the pandemic and um that set me on this journey to figure out where i where i messed up how i messed up um and why it felt like everybody else was doing so much better at love than me and um you know i didn't write this book to be a love guru i wrote it as a student sitting at the front of the class like desperately trying to figure out what's going on. And um, I learned a lot about a lot of the things that we think are love aren't love. And a lot of the people we think are happy aren't happy. And, um, you know, it allowed me to go easier on myself. And that, that wasn't the journey I needed to be on. And even ending that relationship wasn't about breaking up with a person. It was breaking up with a version of myself that had to exist in that space, knowing who I need to be, um, being in love with my own potential. I think a lot of people experience that same thing. Uh, I remember realizing at a certain point in my life that I wasn't really that great at receiving love. People would get too close and I would inevitably start conflicts or something. And and it took me a really long time to even be able to reflect back and see that I was doing that. And so I'm curious for you, you had the realization that it was something you were doing pretty quickly rather than blaming the other person. What led you to that place? Um, I think what I learned in my life is accept responsibility in order to have power. So in every situation, regardless, if I get in a car accident, even if it's, I'm not at fault, I still have responsibilities to get the car fixed and deal with insurance and do all of that stuff. And I look at it the same way um, in life where it's like, okay, if I looked at myself as being a victim, which is very tempting, um, what power is there to make things better? There's none. There's no power in, in self-victimization. Um, so I had to figure out like, where did I go wrong? I had to, you know, and in every situation. And I mean, for me, it's like, I've been violently robbed before. And again, for me to only have power in revisiting that, I have to go like, well, what did I do wrong that I can do different? Instead of being like, you did absolutely nothing wrong. It was their, all their fault. It's like, well, I can make better choices on the routes that I take home. I can make better choices and where I'm, you know, where I'm at, um, how I conduct myself. I was talking on the phone. I was being very loud. I was drawing attention to myself in the middle of the night in a strange city in a neighborhood I'd never been to. So it's not about blaming myself. It's about empowering myself and taking responsibility. And it was the same thing in this situation. Even if I wasn't what the person I need to be with, um, I need to know what I can do different. If we only have power over our attitudes and efforts. I spent most of my 20s in victim mode. I had gone through a lot of things that were out of my control. If I was sharing it with anybody else, it was clear that I could be a victim. But I realized the same thing and just understanding that if that's how I identified, then that's how I was going to feel and that's how that would be reflected in my reality. And so it was really when I 
started to take responsibility. And yes, there were things that happened to me that I could not control and that weren't my fault, but there's a huge difference between fault and responsibility. And so I know that when it comes to love, a lot of us are approaching it with mindsets that aren't serving us or or whatever, and, and then we're blaming ourselves for not being lovable or for not deserving love. What do you think that most people are doing wrong when it comes to love? I think the first thing is their understanding of what love is. Love is invalidation. It's not attention. It's not power, control, success. It's not all these things that come from appearing perfect. You know, love always exists. Love comes from clearing out the mess. It doesn't come from acquiring anything. Um, there's no such thing as being worthy of love. You know, the love that we all yearn for would love everything, even the things that we consider unlovable. Um, you can't be enough for love. Like, I don't think we should be telling people you're worthy and you're enough for love. You just, you should be like, there's no such thing as worthiness and enoughness when it comes to a person. Um, you know, these ideas come from wanting to sell us makeup and sexy cars and clothes to be like, you as you are, you're not good enough. You need more to be something. Um, I think also as kids, you know, yearning for our parents' love, not having context that they have a life outside of us. So if we didn't get Danny Tanner love that we wanted from Full House all the time because dad was tired at work, you know, we started creating the story in our head that we have to earn love. Love isn't a prize. You can't earn love. You can only realize love. Love is the verb. You can only serve love. And to realize more love, you just have to serve it. It doesn't come from being beautiful or being successful. You know, you can get attention from all of that, but attention isn't love. Attention is as much love as McDonald's is food. And it's easy, it's cheap, it's convenient, but too much of it, it's going to mess you up. Yeah, I was reading something recently about realizing when you're in the wrong place. It's like if you're craving attention or control or appreciation, those those three things have snapped me out of different mindsets where I'm like, what am I actually yearning for here? Why do I feel so unsatisfied? And I love how you bring it back to uh, the idea of destination addiction, which is really just the preoccupation with the idea that happiness is in the next place or the next job or the next partner. How do you think that destination addiction applies to love? We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. 
It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How do you think that destination addiction applies to love? Happily ever after. You know, people dream about a beautiful wedding, you know, and they want the wedding more than they want the marriage. And they think once they have it, it's going to be happily ever after. It's this linear thought. And I think, you know, we can go back to culture. We have this, you know, the prevalent culture out here in North America is you do good, you do bad, you die, and you get judged. You know, you know and I come from the Eastern culture, which is cyclical cycles and um, just four seasons of your life all the time. Um, so I think viewing love is the same way. Like, I just have to do these things, then I will find a person, and I've checked it off the box, and I'm good. And it's like, no, that's not enough. You know, it's, it's the rest when the work begins. You know, nobody throws a party for starting high school. Nobody throws a party for starting college. They throw a party for graduating. Yet we throw parties for starting a marriage. We should throw parties to celebrate a year of marriage, five years of marriage. You want to have a lavish, expensive party? You have it when, for your 25th anniversary. You have, some, you have an accomplishment to celebrate. And I think this culture does not come from anything other than commercialism and people finding ways to make money off everything. And let's make money off the fact that you're starting this new time of your life and two and a half months for, for a diamond ring of your salary. And let's do all of these things. And, and we really have to understand that like we are so influenced by the things that we watch and the cultures that we're in, not realizing that all of this is designed just to make money, especially in the United States. It's to monetize. So you're watching a film to keep your attention so you can watch a commercial after. Like, it's that. And it's important because this stuff is shaping our minds and it's shaping what our expectations are, especially the love stories, the rom-coms, you know, the Disney films, the old Disney films more than the new ones. The new ones are much better. Um, porn, all of this stuff is creating expectations and understandings that are not in line with reality. Yeah, I have, I'm the type of person that when I notice everyone else is doing something, I immediately start to push against it. <laughs> it's something that serves me well 80% of the time, 20% of the time, not so much. But when my husband and I got married, we decided to just have a backyard wedding. It was totally different. We had 
like my grandma was the flower girl, had dessert shots and weed brownies instead of <laughs> instead of cake and just did it completely different. And we had the same conversations where we're like, how much sense does it make to go into this brand new phase of our lives in debt, which is what every single one of my cousins did. They had these huge $50,000 weddings. And <laughs> one one of them still paying off a wedding that they're not... <laughs> in the marriage yeah. anymore. <laughs> and, and financial issues is a high cause of divorce. And yeah. divorce is like, 50, the, the divorce rate in America is like 56%. Yeah, it's crazy. And so mm-hmm. we just decided to go at it completely different and we're still married. So maybe, maybe that has something to do with it. That, that's the best marriage advice I'd ever heard from Ryan Holiday. And they said, you know, how do you stay married for so long? He goes, you don't break up. <laughs> it's so true. I love Ryan yeah. Holiday. Uh, you talk about this differentiation, and I know that wording originally comes from Aubrey Marcus, who was actually on this podcast way back in episode 97, but mm. I love the way that you explain it. What is the difference between big L love and small L love? You know, big L love is is, is the love that matters, and small L love is all the things that we think are love, you know, the pleasure. Sorry, I'm in, I'm in midtown New York, so endless noise. Um you know, so so you know, we ch- we we thirst for big L love, but we settle for small L love. You know, the validation, the attention, um, pleasure. You know, things that will medicate a lack of peace. Whereas big L love will be peace, and I think that's important to to kind of understand from that perspective. And it's difficult though, because so many of us identify more with all of the small L love. You know, the that was something I had to unravel. My my parents were divorced really my whole life. I I don't really have a memory of them being together. And my dad would come and he didn't have custody. And so it was not even every other weekend. It was like for trips. And as a young girl, it's kind of difficult to develop a relationship that way. I was a mommy's girl. And so I'm like, I don't want to go with my dad this weekend. A lot of times he felt like a stranger. And so he would mitigate that by gifting me things. So Mm He got me a lot of my big first things, my first TV, phone, laptop, my first, what is it, like TI-89 calculator or something. (laughs) When everyone else had an 83, I was the cool kid. (laughs) With the graphs and the charts. Yeah. And I am still, honestly, like it's still something that I have have a mental conversation with myself with. The last like five years have been better, but I equated – gifts with love for a really long time. And so when I'd be in a relationship and didn't get a good Christmas gift, it's not like I would be mad or like think that they should. It's that I would feel unloved. And I couldn't even figure out what that feeling came from. I was like, why do I feel unsatisfied? Why do I feel hurt by this? I don't know what it is. And and so it's it's difficult to kind of unwind some of those really old stories that we create, especially if we don't realize that it's a story when we're tying together what we think is love <laughs> from childhood, I guess. Yeah, completely. And it's, a, it's it's all about that awareness. It's just starting everything with that awareness and picking up on our patterns and realizing that we didn't come out the womb this way. We, we are a product of our nature and our nature. And um, we float through life. We're, we're encouraged to float through life. So, you know, not be conscious of how we act and our habits and our patterns and who we are. And that influences who we're attracted to. That influences what our expectations are around love. Some people think jealousy is hot. If my partner is jealous, that means they care about me. There's all these things. And it's like, this comes from what we see on television. Remembering that like Ross and Rachel are not an example of a good relationship. They're an example of good TV. 
in a healthy relationship, the healthy relationships you know in your life would never make for a great reality show or television show, storyline or anything. And I think from that standpoint, that's something that's really important for us to start and understand. And it'd be like, you know, I, I, that's really what it was for me is just you play these ideas in your head for so long and trying to find someone to fit into that story. <laughs> this is embarrassing, but I was watching Bachelor in Paradise one day and <laughs> which is... <laughs> it was my guilty pleasure for years. Like my audience knows that, but it's actually funny because recently I was like trying to watch the latest season and I'm like, you know, I think I've leveled up too much. I can't even sit through an episode. So fingers crossed that lasts because it was a waste of time. But we were watching this episode and, and it happened like three times where all these couples thought like they wanted to be told what to do by their partner and they didn't understand. And I like looked on Twitter and everyone was backing them up. And I'm like, all these people think that being controlled is love. Like for me, that I think that was what set me off where I'm like, I got to move on. I, I can't watch this anymore. But you had talked about how our cultures, especially Western culture, is like this destination version of love, whereas you were raised in, in Eastern culture and it's more cyclical. How does that affect your approach to love? Like coming from a Western a Western background, it's uh, one of the things I'm trying to unwind is, is this conception of like linear time, basically. And uh, a lot of things I've been reading have talked about that, the cyclical uh, thinking of things more in cycles. What does that look like and how does that affect the way you experience it? I think it's just taking certain measures. Like I said, like you can't measure a person as enough or worthy. You can't measure life as a failure or success. You know, life has its seasons, you know, and the vast majority of our emotions as humans are going to be negative. That's what keeps us alive for survival. So I think for me, just the cyclical nature of it is like, oh, I'm in a summer, I'm in a winter, I'm in a fall, they're all, I'm in a spring, they're all necessary. You know, you move out to LA and every day is the exact same and it gets a little bit creepy. And I think for me, it's realizing that there's a value in all, all of them. You know, I only learn when things don't go my way. I win or I learn. I don't lose. And failure is what we pave the road to success with versus just trying to avoid pain, avoid hurt, avoid failure. No, things don't work out your way. You learn something and that's okay. And even from a business perspective, the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones that seek failure, not the ones who are avoiding it. Yeah, I know so many people, especially at this age, I'm 37, and it's it's funny kind of going through the stages of life with people in my 20s. All of a sudden, uh, a segment of my friends had a bunch of babies, but then there was a long stretch of time that nobody did, and then it was like marriage season, and now it's all my LA friends that are having babies in their late 30s, where my hometown friends are having babies in their early 20s or mid-20s. But people that are whose relationships end i'm watching them go through it with a, a lot more feelings around it being a waste of time or because their biological clock is ticking or, or whatever it is it's like oh, i just spent a year and a half with this guy what a waste of time and so being able to see it as a cycle and being able to see it as a learning experience is such a powerful mindset to step into because yeah when I guess at this age, when the stakes feel higher for you, it's harder to kind of let go and be like, oh, the next one will be okay. Because, you know, maybe maybe it's too late for what they thought their life was going to look like. And then you just have to have trust that this is how it's supposed to end up, I suppose. Yeah, completely. And I think surrender is, is a skill that requires practice, just like love. These are skills that require practice. And I think we just think, oh, I love somebody, it's going to work. That's the glue. No, love is a fuel that motivates you to work at it. You know, and surrender is the skill that will allow you 
to exist in a world with a little bit more peace because you have less expectations of how you think things are supposed to be. Because the way things are going to play out have very little to do with you. You know, a lot of us have the center of the universe mindset, but like this place has been here a lot longer than us and it'll be here a lot long after. Uh, and we have to understand that we are experiencing this existence, you know, as it is. And this life that we have of 80, 90, 100 years is a small blip in comparison to the 14 billion years that existence has been a thing. And, you know, stuff doesn't go your way. That stuff wasn't going to go anybody's way because of that. And it's like, you have to surrender yourself to that. And when we respect the nature of things, this is when things work. Like learning, understanding gravity is the reason we can fly. And I've even heard from so many people, I've just had a lot of friends that have experienced fertility issues. And mm. a lot of them, and this isn't to say every one of them, but the ones that have had a really long journey and then have ended up naturally conceiving, for a lot of them, it was when they surrendered. And one in particular that I'm thinking, she actually was a previous guest on this podcast and she had gone through, it was like close to a decade trying. And then she finally was surrendered to the idea of adoption. And the moment the adoption went through, she found out she was pregnant. <laughs> and and at that time she was finally, she was ready for both. And so with so many things, we put this pressure on ourselves to go find this or to make this happen or to create this. And that reminds me of one of the things that you talk about where you say that love isn't found, it's realized. What do you mean when you say that? The love's always there. You don't have to find it. It's always there. It's, it's flowing. It's the breeze. You know, you realize the breeze by opening your sail, you know, and love isn't getting anything. Love is not wanting anything. So we have a lot of clutter. It just blocks these pathways of love for us to feel them. To realize love is to clean the clutter. You don't have to do anything or be anything. There's no worthiness. As I said, it's not a prize. Love's always there. It's the default. Uh, the, the quote I have in the book from Naval Ravikant, it's love is what it remains when all other emotions cease to exist. You know, so love, so you just have to realize it. it's always been there. And it's just a matter of all the things that we've done and we've been taught that create blockages. And the work that we have to do is internal to unclog the blockages. Earlier in the book, too, you talked about how a lot of people equate love with God. And even in your description of it right then, it, it reminds me of what I heard about God growing up. Yeah. Where do you think that, do you think that connection comes just from biblical passages or do you think it comes from the realization of either one as well and how that feels? Well, I mean, I didn't grow up in the Bible, so it, you know, it's definitely not biblical passages. It's, it's, I think it's the innate desire for peace and the innate desire for peace comes because i think about it's interesting i think about going to like a baseball game and you're in a crowd of like forty thousand people and you're all cheering for your team it's just a magic to that and the magic is you cease to exist you're part of something bigger than yourself and i think what god represents um depending on your beliefs is god represents that bigger than yourself um, and when i refer to god i refer to god as the everything and nothing because it's that moment that like a drop falls into the ocean and then the membrane pops and now does the drop still exist or is it part of the ocean? Does the ocean exist? Or is it just the drop got bigger? And it's that feeling of being, you know, beyond duality. And, and it's interesting because it's like, even in the Bible, like the, the tree of good and evil, that's a tree of judgment. Looking at things as good and bad. That's been our biggest challenge in life is that we judge everything. We're not curious about things. So humans are cursed for biting from that tree and viewing things as good and bad. when we should just be surrendered everything to everything because it is what it is. And so I think for me, it's, you know, the nature and, and, and 
philosophy that I grew up in, Sikh philosophy, we have a line, Hokome Andasapko Bad Hokum Nakoi. Hokum means like the the will of things. Everybody's within that. Nobody, nobody is exempt from that. And it's, as I said, when you start to understand the nature of things, again, you understand gravity, you learn how to fly. You know, you understand the cold and you learn how to live in it. You know, when we understand weights, we can get ourselves stronger. Like whatever it is, when we voluntarily put ourselves in these uncomfortable situations, we thrive from them. And I think it's learning the nature of things instead of spending so much time judging it and wishing it was something else. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash MindLove. Yeah, you. I know you talk about this in your book too, but it's one of the things that it was one of my first deep dives into healing was realizing that my judgments of other people were just a reflection of my judgments in myself. One of my favorite spiritual channelers, Paul Selig, says, what you damn, damns you back. <laughs> but I was recovering from an eating disorder and I had a lot of judgments about weight, uh, and I, w- I didn't notice how many judgments I've ha- I had of other people because I was so obsessed with what I was going through until mm. I had started to step out of it. And I would just be like walking down the street and it wasn't like I was trying to judge people, but I was comparing myself every single time. Like, wow, that person's wearing a midriff. I wouldn't if I was that weight, like things like that. And, and then I started to really beat myself up for having those thoughts. And like, you're trying to do all of this evolved healing why are these your thoughts and and i just had this realization at this time and this was before i had even really read anything about this idea i'm like this is exactly how you think of yourself you are looking at everybody else to figure out what is acceptable for you to do and vice versa at the same time and so figuring out that one standard that everyone should be and this is what you're holding yourself to and this person falls out of it or falls in it and so you're immediately making meaning around that. And so for me now, it's something where when I'm noticing a judgment of somebody else, I take it inward and I I try to work on it within myself too and have that compassion. But at that time, I didn't have that ability. And so I I didn't have really the ability for self-compassion or I didn't feel like I could. Nothing about it felt real. And so I started that healing work 
outward, actually, by every time I'd walk by somebody, I'd, I'd think of something that was beautiful about them or that I loved about them. And I did that for so long that I ended up creating a mindset where where I could find more kindness for myself. Whereas usually I'd be like <laughs> judging everything because one thing looked off, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. And I think from that standpoint, um, I have a line in the book that says, you know, we judge because we're insecure and we're insecure because we judge. And it's like these, the the invisible they and their opinions that matter. Like this is this ancient because we lived in small communities and the being accepted by other people mattered. It kept us alive. It kept us included in the community and being rejected by the people would ostracize us. Right. And that would lead to our death. So now in modern times, it won't, you know, being kicked out of a group won't lead to your death, but it'll feel like it. Being rejected will feel like death. And that's in our wiring. And again, it just has to, we just have to be aware of it. We can't rewire. I'm not, I'm not here to get you to rewire and not care what people think and, and make saying no to people any easier. No, it's going to remain hard. But again, that's what courage is. Courage is acting despite the fear, not in the absence of fear. Making decisions despite these feelings and knowing that it's for the greater good. Like I am designed to want to please people, but that is not helping me discover love. So let me focus on myself. Let me build my self-respect over my self-esteem. Um, and that will give me a much more long-lasting source of love versus trying to make everybody else happy, which is impossible. Oh, I like that line, building your self-respect over your self-esteem, mm-hmm. which is not something that you hear often because there's a mm-hmm. lot of things out there about building up self-esteem. But what would that look like for you in ways to build up your self-respect? Date yourself. Go out on a date. You know, look at your body with gratitude. Don't look at it critically. Say thank you. Pick your favorite part of your body. Every way you love other people, love yourself. You know, self-havening, the idea of hugging yourself, self-pleasure, pleasure yourself. Be your best friend. Be an advocate for yourself and be the person who needs to kick you in the butt if you need to do something. Uh, when you identify gaps in your upbringing, be that nurturing parent for yourself now. Whatever skills, you know, I had a friend say, oh, my parents never taught me financial literacy. Okay, we established that. No point in hating on them. You know, there's reasons where they had limits in their capacity and their time. Go learn it now. Go figure it out right now. Fill in those gaps for yourself. Be that nurturing parent. Be that encouraging parent for yourself now. Um, that, doing that hard stuff and realizing that outside validation, social media, counting likes, all of this is like they're addictive. They're addictive potato chips and it's fast food. And again, they'll give you something to do, but it won't take you anywhere. So you have to realize that quality work, whether it's building a relationship with somebody else or with yourself, is unsexy and it's repetition. And it's boring and it's routine and it's habits and it's pre-planning, you know, but we're taught spontaneity. All the, Like, yeah, you can create space for that. But the work in maintaining yourself, like brushing your teeth and wiping your butt is unsexy, but you need to do it. It's the same thing with self-love and the same thing with your love for other people. Unless you get a bidet, it gets a little bit more sexy. <laughs> a little bit more sexy. You look forward to that. But... It's this is something I've realized, and it sounds silly, but I really credit my dog for teaching me how to love. I lost my dog in May, and I'm, I'm pregnant sorry. right now, so I could cry thinking about it. But he he was the very first person in my whole life person. <laughs> See, that's this is my relationship with my dog. He, he was my person, but he was the very first little being in my whole life that I really felt loved no matter what. And so he was with me through all of my trauma in my 20s. And it's funny because there's no way that there's any truth to this belief that I had. But I had this belief when I was younger that 
or when I was a teenager, really, that my mom was nicer to me when I looked pretty. <laughs> and, and it's mm. fun, something that I've like meditated on and, and unraveled. And, and that creates cognitive bias, so you'll start to find evidence of that. Yeah, and and I know my mom. Like the, she didn't do that. Like seeing after doing the work, I could see that that's not how it was. But for some reason, it's because I think I I just always thought I would be more accepted mm-hmm. when I looked put together, when I had makeup on, whatever it was. And so I was one of those people, especially in my early twenties. Like I did not like seeing people without makeup. I was a big or without me wearing makeup and I was a big party girl. And so the amount of ragers I would be at where I would be there overnight and I'd like secretly sneak in and put makeup on. And then people would even make fun of me for that. Like who's thinking about putting makeup on at four 30 in the morning. And I'm like, and then I'm like embarrassed that I have to do that. And so my dog though, he taught me a lot that that was, I was actually able to bring into other relationships. And, and it's like I said, it sounds silly because it's just this little creature, but I think it might have taken me a lot longer to get there without something like that. And so, yeah, it, and, and it's interesting with dogs. I have a, I had a dog that passed away in 07 after living his life out naturally. And then I was avoiding owning a dog, but I was everybody's backseat dog owner, you know, and then I did get a new dog uh, at, at the beginning of 2021 and um, just a whole different magic, whole level of magic with them. Uh, and there was a codependency there. And, you know, I think because she wasn't my first dog, I'm not romanticizing the relationship, but, you know, dogs have attached themselves to you for survival. And that's actually a good warning sign if you have a personal relationship like that. You're like, you are my everything. You are my better half. These aren't healthy relationships. The relationships that we should be having with humans should be more like cats, interdependent. I'll do me, you do you, I'll hit you up when I need you. And we can need each other for different things. And I think from that standpoint, it's really um, essential. So looking at it from that perspective, I think what we can actually do, um, as I said, is the awareness that comes from everything and talking to ourselves and saying, hey, um, why is this, story, is this story in my head serving me, believing that my mother treats me better when I'm pretty? Does this serve me? And then from there, taking it to a different perspective and then, you know, journaling it and exposing it out because the weight that it has in your head makes a complete, completely different situation. Yeah, just challenging those things. Like when I, it really was first identifying that I had that belief and it, the belief was able to dissipate pretty quickly after that. So I'm like, oh my God, that's what I've been holding on to. That's, that's the thing that's been driving behaviors, driving insecurities, whatever it is. But there's another quote that you say that really hit me hard. And so we don't feel pain because we think about our shitty past. It's the opposite. We revisit our shitty past because we're already in pain. Talk about that. Yeah, that's from Joe Dispenza. And then, oh my God, it opened up my eyes uh, very quickly when I was like, oh yeah, I am in a bad mood. So now I'm checking stuff because pain can be addictive too. Um, and if I'm in a bad mood, I'm, I want to text my ex or I want to look up something like that versus being in a situation where we're in a good mood, you know, that's my balls the other way. And I think that's really, really important to kind of recognize um, in this. And it's like, stop thinking that our circumstances control our emotions because very often our, our emotions paint our circumstances. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, just the conversations around ego and figuring out what's driving the thoughts, the behaviors, whatever. And so often for me, like you just said, I will find myself, 
the only things that sound good to do are the things that are going to keep me in the same energy that I'm currently in. <laughs> so I actually create, I call them my power lists. And so I have them listed out things that I know make me feel good. <laughs> and a lot of times I even feel resistant to looking at them. I'm like, okay, I'm feeling crappy. All I want to do is watch TV and eat junk food and lay here and listen to sad songs and cry. Let me take out my list and I'll, I'll look at it. And, and so I have different versions of them, like just the ones that are like get outside and take a walk and then also like higher vibe ones. So I have a whole list of like Udemy courses I want to take and, and Gaia documentaries I want to watch so that no matter what mood I'm in, I can just kind of slip into that. And I'm like, all right, this is so much better than Bachelor in Paradise. <laughs> but you talk about how ego is defining ourselves by everything that we're not and then trying to really hard to protect that horrible definition. But it's not just about protecting our egos. It's a, it's about how that need or that drive to protect our egos actually keeps us from love. How does that happen? I think when we separate ourselves from other people, ego is a boundary. We create an ego boundary and I'm me, you're you. But love is melting that boundary. And I think it's also us recognizing that oftentimes we create these identities of ego and their walls and fortresses that we think are protecting ourselves, but really they're not protecting us, they're serving as prisons. And it's really important to recognize them as prisons. Your reputation is a prison and you can reinforce that prison through compliments, not just through insults. And it's really important to recognize that, that we should not just look to please other people, but we should also look to be mindful of the compliments that come in our lives because those are also shaping us in a way that can't be healthy. I had friends be like, oh, nothing ever gets to humble. Nothing ever bothers him. And then I forced myself to be that way, even at my own expense. And I think from that standpoint, it's really important to recognize that, look, your reputation, your ego is you identifying yourself as a certain person, a certain caricature, and that's trapping in your authentic self. And you're wearing a mask and you're simply uh, suffocating off that. And instead, let's focus on being more of our authentic selves by being vulnerable. If you are perfect, you can't be vulnerable. Vulnerability is a currency that I give you and you give me. You revealed to me. And it doesn't have to be intense stuff. You revealed to me that you lost a dog. That's a piece of vulnerability. And invited me to be vulnerable with you. I lost my dog. Now we've connected on something deeper than simply just having an interview. Um, and that's what we should do. We should connect with each other being vulnerable. And it doesn't have to be deep, dark secrets. It can be stuff that anybody can relate to that wouldn't scare away a stranger the first time to speak with them. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams... 
Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I went through a period of time where I was doing a lot of self-growth and it's it was uh, the few years before I ended up starting kind of this branch of life with this podcast and this public persona. And in that few years, there was a lot of shedding of who I was before. I said I was a big party girl before. <laughs> there was like the interim of like still partying, also trying to raise, <laughs> like be a different type of person attached to certain things, trying to let them go. But during that period of time, some of my closest friendships fell away. And for good reason. I think once I started developing boundaries, that was one of the things. One friend had a really hard time with my boundaries because I went from the go with the flow girl to all of a sudden I have standards and things that I want. And then another one, there was just friction at the time in our lives. We're semi in contact now, but not close like we were. And so I had let go of the friendships that I was always around and I was making new friendships. But as I was making these new friendships, I was already mind love Melissa, you know? And so it was actually really difficult for me because I felt this need and I'm, you know, before I would have called it a pressure, but I think it, for me now I can look back and say it was a need to live up to this experience of who they thought that I was, my Instagram personality or whatever. And so I remember one time kind of snapping back at something. I was in an irritable mood and uh, and somebody's like, I just read your Instagram caption and now you're going to respond like this. This is just two different things. And I remember feeling shame at that moment, but I'm actually glad it happened because I was able to sit with it later on and and discern that, you know, just because that's that person's expectation doesn't mean that I'm not showing up vulnerable enough online or I'm not showing up high vibe enough in real life. Like these are just two different versions of myself that you happen to catch, you know? And so uh, I don't need to be one or the other. Yes, I'm trying to evolve so that I don't react and I respond instead, but at the same time, I'm still human. And so uh, it's still something that I have to consciously work through though. Um, there's been uh, we all do. We should just celebrate the progress. Like you're never going to be perfect at it. It's, it's an ongoing. You're an ongoing work of art in progress, and it'll it'll only be done when you take your last breath. And I think you know the subtitle of the book is going easier on yourself, embracing imperfections. And it's that same concept that I just want to remind people. It's like I'm pointing out our challenges, but I'm not judging you for it. It's okay that we want people to like us. It's okay that we're attracted to people that may not be healthy for us. It's okay. It's normal. There's nothing wrong with you for it, but step one is being aware of it. And that's the first step to course correcting in a better place. And then don't celebrate being perfect. Just celebrate the progress that you're doing better than you were yesterday or last week or last month or last year. The difficult part for a lot of people is that 
we become so attached to our egos that we forget that it's the ego and we think that's the authentic self. How can we become more aware of when we're doing or being something from a place of ego rather than that place of authenticity? Peace. Do you feel pleasure from it? It's your ego. Do you find peace from it? It's love. You know, peace is not needing anything. Peace isn't getting everything. Peace is not needing everything. And we all have memories of peace. We all have memories of holding a baby and just being full of love. We all have these moments where we just didn't want the moment to stop and everything was perfect. That's peace. And anything that feels good, you know, validation, you know, uh, power, control, that's ego. And all that, anything that makes you wanting more, I want more of this. I want more of this. I want more of this. That's ego. And anything that makes you be like, I'm good. This is good. This is all I need. That's peace. And that's love. I'm somebody who's really sensitive to other people's energies, which has also been something I had to unwind. Like, is this coming from me? Is this coming from, from this interaction? And so it reminds me of the story I told earlier around insecurities, how it was, you know, almost easier to do that work by having many conversations with myself about somebody else versus myself or, or whatever. But I think that sometimes when other people are involved, it can complicate things because we might feel their energy or the pressure to please them is too great. I still have that. I still have a very difficult time disappointing people. <laughs> like I just had to text my childcare provider that we don't need her on Wednesdays. And I literally sat there for like 15 minutes, <laughs> really worried that she was going to get we're, upset. <laughs> we're Canadian. We're Canadian. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And, and so I think one of the things when it comes to healing this, our own relationships with love or our ability to receive or feel love, we tend to tie that with people. But it might be helpful because I know you talk about how there's other pathways to accessing points of love. And for some people, that might be an easier start to to start to feel that energy, to start to receive that. What are some of the other pathways to love that people can explore in order to kind of feel into it that doesn't involve people? Well, um, date yourself. You know, as I said, like it's whatever love that you wish you can give somebody else, give to yourself. Take yourself on a vacation. Um, be vulnerable with yourself. That comes through journaling, praying. Praying is amazing. Prayer uh, lets you authentically say what you like, uh, what you don't like, what you wish for, what you're grateful for. It's authentic. Being authentic with yourself, being unconditionally honest with yourself, um, falling in love with your potential, all these things that we do to other people, you know, let's do them with ourselves. Um, and that will tap that well of love. And then we have love to share without requiring reciprocity because we just have love to share. And a lot of times that work of being with yourself doesn't always feel good. I mean, there's such this like buzz movement over self-care and the bubble baths and the really, really, it's the really expensive wellness things that are constantly being sold to us in the name of self-care. But you also talk about the need to sit with your pain to experience love. How does that open ourselves up to more love? Being vulnerable. Vulnerability is the the, the, the currency for connection and connection is the bad pathway of love. So avoiding pain, avoiding uncomfortable emotions, that's what leads to mental health issues. Suppressing the anxiety is a mental health issue, health issue not the anxiety. So from that standpoint, um, sitting with the pain is having a relationship with yourself, having that uncomfortable conversation with yourself. We can't just look at the pretty parts of life. Sitting there by ourselves, not distracted, not medicating and dealing with that is going to build a level of self-respect 
that will keep us away from thirsting from self-esteem. Uh, yeah, I used to say, I hate being alone with my thoughts. And somehow I didn't see anything wrong with that. <laughs> it was like a line <laughs> I used. Fear is a compass. You know, that, that, that we avoid is the direction we should head. And, and, and that's exactly what that is. Um, you know, to go from a bad place to a better place, you have to go through a worse place. And that worst place is sitting alone by yourself with those thoughts. Knowing, all right, I'm here. I'm good. I'm well fed. I use the bathroom. I have a glass of water beside me. I got a box of tissues. Let's go. Let's clean out this inbox. Let's do it. And just sit there and experience it all. What is your practice for that? Because recently I go back and forth with the, you know, sitting alone with my thoughts. And then, and some people think that's meditation. But one of the things I've been studying lately is the origins of the word, how meditation the word we have for meditation in the Western world is is flawed because we have so many ideas of it being around idle pondering or reflection, when really the word Zen comes from the Chinese word Chan, which comes from the Sanskrit word Dairan, which comes from the word san, uh, concentration. And so it's all about the mantra, coming back to the mantra. At least this is what I was recently I'll, reading. I would go as far as to say do nothing. You're already doing nothing. So I think the challenge with other types of meditation is you'll constantly have a voice in your head asking, am I doing this right? So what I say to people is just sit and do nothing. You can't ask yourself, am I doing nothing right? Just sit. Just a thought, let it be a thought. Which is no thought, let there be no thought. If you want to play a movie in your head in a video game, play it all out. That's You're cleaning up your inbox. Just sit. You're going to feel a lot of anxiety. Feel it. Accept it. Deal with it. Every single emotion you've ever felt in your entire life was never permanent. The good ones or the uncomfortable ones. And you know, none of these feelings will be permanent either. Sit through it and um, don't worry about the mantras for now because that in itself will make you destination oriented. And whereas doing nothing, it's just being like, hey, this is me and myself. I'm, I'm on a date. I'm in a room with myself. No distractions. Let's have a conversation with myself. Let's see what happens. No pen, no paper. Let's just do it. And um, try that for one. And, and from what I've heard is it's easier to do an hour than it is to do 10 minutes. But again, you still have thoughts like, what's the time? How much time is left? Is my timer going to go off? That's cool. All of that's fine. All of that is completely fine. In transcendental meditation, that was the big thing. It's like the moment you're trying, <laughs> then like just release this effort of trying, which then everyone starts trying not to try, which is difficult. <laughs> Doesn't work either. But I, uh, I have had my longest meditation streak to where it's actually now like deeply ingrained in me. It's the first thing I do in the morning, 20 minutes minimum. And I'm finding the need to increase the time because like you said, all of a sudden it just doesn't feel like enough time. It goes so fast. I don't even think about it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I guess maybe I need to move to 30 or 40 minutes or just sit longer. But one of the things that you, you say as well is that we shouldn't fall in love with potential. What does it look like to fall in love with potential versus not doing that? Yeah, it's, it's viewing somebody for who they could be versus who's in front of you. It's not accepting somebody for who they are. It's accepting somebody for an idea of who you think they can be. And that's why I say if you want to fall in love with potential, fall in love with your own. Because you know you. We don't know anybody else. We're not in their shoes. And I think from that standpoint, from that standpoint, it's super important. So if you want to love somebody, just accept them as they are in front of us. And, you know... And again, I think I had this conversation with somebody else recently and we were talking about, well, what if you see that they can go from a janitor to a CEO? You can see that because their quality of personality is already showing that. You know, their circumstances are always going to change, but their quality of personality, they're already a CEO. 
if they're working towards that as a janitor and you can see that in them, by all means, now you're not in love with their potential. You just love with them. You know, that's just, you know, they're going to go further than where they are. But the person that they are, the qualities that they have, the, the habits that they have, those aren't going to change. You know, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. And that's, that's exactly what it is. That's why in Shark Tank, they're always like, we invest in the people, not the, <laughs> the idea. But I think the last thing I want to cover, just because it is difficult for people. I mean, even in our conversation, <laughs> I talked about how difficult it is just for me to text my 21-year-old sitter that I don't need her for a half day on Wednesday. <laughs> and it's just really difficult to put ourselves first. And so much of this comes back to prioritizing ourselves, setting our own boundaries, understanding ourselves well enough to know what we're looking for. You had a really beautiful story about this relationship that didn't work out where a woman did that to you and you're like, you just have to respect that. How can we put ourselves first without feeling selfish? Being selfish isn't putting yourself first. Being selfish is expecting other people to put you first. You need to put yourself first. Just like being on the airplane, put your oxygen mask on before anybody else's. If you aren't taking care of yourself, then you are of no value to anybody else. I think that's really important. Um, and we also have to, as I said, uh, a cheap way of connecting is through self-pity. So what we do is we create self-pity by being a martyr. Oh, I'm there for everybody and nobody's ever there for me. That's cheap. It's easy. Now nobody understands me but myself. And I feel like I've made a um, connection through vulnerability, but I haven't. You know, I'm isolating myself from everybody else, acting like I'm the first person to ever put somebody else's needs before mine. Instead, let me prioritize myself, create my boundaries, have my standards. That doesn't mean I expect other things from other people. I have standards and people live up to them. I'll invest in them. They don't, they don't. And that's fine. They can be who they want to be. And I think it's important to realize I'm of no value to anybody else if I'm not taking care of myself. I have to do, I have to do that. And let's stop romanticizing being martyrs. Cause that's just going to chip away at us and lead to resentment. And when you're in a world of resentment, you're not going to find a place for love to exist. Well, thank you so much for everything that you've brought to this conversation and for such an incredible book. I was actually only one paragraph into your book and I read it out loud to my husband. I was like, this is the kind of writing that I like. <laughs> like when I write my book, I want to be oh, this authentic. It. So uh, it, it's just incredible. So for listeners that thank are interested so in learning more about you, you have a really big platform on so many places, but also learning about your book, How to Be Loved, where's the best place for them to connect? Uh, at Humble the Poet. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. And um, humblethepoet.com slash love for the book. All the links for this episode are at mindlove.com slash 293. Your challenge for this week is a little journaling exercise. I want you to write down all of your beliefs, thoughts, feelings, attitudes around love. This could be romantic love, it could be familial love, it could be friendship love. Ideally, you'd write down your thoughts and feelings about all of it because you want to really get the totality of your beliefs around love. Now, audit what you've written. Are there areas that could be improved? Did you find any sneaky little beliefs that you didn't know were there? And if you did, I want you to take a moment to consciously rewrite these. This is the very first step to rewiring a neural pathway. First, you have to sit down and write the new belief. Even if it feels fake, it doesn't feel like you, this is cultivating what you want to feel, what you want to believe. And these beliefs are what creates your reality. I like to do this with all of my limiting beliefs. 
I will often notice that there's an area of my life that needs work and I know that it comes back to my beliefs. So I will become attentive to it. Sometimes that's just one journaling exercise sitting down in the morning. Other times it's writing down the beliefs and thoughts as they come up. So maybe I'm swiping through a dating app, which don't worry, I'm not doing anymore. But <laughs> maybe I am and I feel these little thoughts like, oh, I don't need love, I don't want this. And I find myself convincing myself of something that's not true to my deeper reality. And maybe I think it is because the ego is very strong. But sometimes it takes sifting through that to really understand what it is that you really want because the ego will create a lot of protective mechanisms for yourself. So let me know how it goes. I'd love to see what you came up with. If you're really bold, take a picture of it and tag me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you liked this episode, please consider sharing it. You can take a screenshot, tag me and Humble the Poet and share it. We love to see what you thought about it. So let me know. And if you're listening to these episodes and you're thinking, I want to transform faster. I want mind love to be a way of life. I hear all of these things and I'm inspired, but after the episode, I just go back to the way things were. That's why I created the Mind Love Membership. You can find out more information at mindlove.com slash membership. The platform was designed to hold your hand through the transformations. And every month you get a new key thing to work on that will make a huge difference in your life. So find out more at mindlove.com slash membership. You can also find all of my amazing sponsors at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.